This morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. Will you please stand as you read God's word? Matthew 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We come now to study it, and we pray that you would help us to be receptive to your word, to actually not just give it attention, that we do ask for that, but also spiritually to be able to discern what it is that you're saying to us. And we pray that your word would do that for which it is designed to do. This passage, this word, now, would produce the change in our hearts that you um, wish it to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. Well, in about 270 AD, 270 AD, there was persecution going on in the environ of Rome, in the environment of Rome around there. And uh, there was a pastor who developed a particular ministry to help Christians who had been persecuted. And uh, this uh, pastor did various things to help uh, these Christians being persecuted. He uh, performed uh, baptisms, he performed communion and marriage. He's known to history as Valentine. And uh, then this legend developed over time, and in the Middle Ages, um, there was this sort of uh, atmosphere of medieval courtly love, as it's called. And in 1382, Chaucer, uh, in his uh, Parliament of Fools, wrote this, For this was on St. Valentine's Day, when every bird cometh there to choose his mate. And so it developed. 1382. 270 AD, uh, pastor helping Christians escape persecution, baptism, communion, and marriage. 1382, St. Valentine's Day, every bird cometh there to choose his mate, Parliament of Fools, and now it's a hallmark holiday. (laughs) Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There was no shame. Genesis chapter 2. And now? This week uh, was the 
Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. Down at the University of Chicago this week, they had their sex week. Now, obviously, this is a difficult passage, (laughs) and it's going to require uh, some careful handling. Here, Here are two key principles I want us to bear in mind. One, context. Uh, Both these principles work with any passage, but they're particularly important with this one. One, context. We must not interpret this passage outside the overarching intention of uh, the context in which it is placed, the Sermon on the Mount. So, Sermon on the Mount is not primarily a moral teaching. There, of course, is much that is about morality, but its purpose is to reveal Jesus as the Lord. So, chapter 5, verse 2, he gathered disciples, the crowds came to him, he taught them. Chapter 7, verse 29, they're amazed that he taught as one who had authority. So the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to reveal Jesus' authority, to show that he is the Lord. Now, underneath that overarching theme, there are two sub-themes. I call them conviction on the one hand, calling on the other. So this section begins with uh, verse 21, the section in which the passage we're studying is placed, where it says uh, we need a righteousness greater than the Pharisees. And then it ends in verse 48 with, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Conviction. Who can be perfect? And so this convicts us that the only righteousness that's sufficient for God is Christ's righteousness. I want you to bear that particularly in mind this morning. For this passage, if it convicts you of sin, it's intended graciously to lead you to put your trust in Christ's righteousness. Then calling. On the other hand, we are called to put into practice Jesus' commands. So if you're a Christian here this morning, you have the Holy Spirit, you are called to do this. You may not end up being perfect this side of heaven. None of us can be. But still you are called to aim for perfection. Conviction and calling. So that's the context that we would embrace Jesus as Lord. The other key principle I want you to bear in mind is humility. And uh, I was reminded this week of a well-known study by uh, a Harvard psychologist in 1999. This study goes like this. They put together a group of people and they, got, they showed them a video of people playing basketball. And in this video, they asked them to count the number of passes that were made while they were playing basketball, you see. And as they were counting these passes, in the middle of this video, the Harvard psychologist got a man to dress up as a gorilla and to wave his arms around for nine seconds. Half of the people watching the video didn't notice the gorilla. And there's been a more recent study done of a similar kind of cardiologists where they showed CT scans of uh, chest, uh, of the CT chest scans showing lungs. And uh, radiologists got together and someone had drawn a little gorilla figure in the top right hand of the, of the lung. And 80% of the radiologists didn't notice the gorilla, which may not encourage you. Here you are, and you're thinking, this I've heard all before. In fact, I may be an expert on this text, or I grew up in the church, and I've heard this kind of thing before. 
and you are in danger of missing the gorilla in the room. You've got to come with humility to Scripture. Otherwise, you'll sit there again at the back of the room and it will just go right over your head and you'll miss an opportunity to meet Jesus this morning in power and conviction and calling for holiness. So let's look at it together. What is Jesus saying? He's saying very simply, cut it out. First, cut it out of the heart. This is verses 27 to 30. This that they had heard that it was said uh, is also from the Ten Commandments, as was the quotation about murder last week. Uh, But the Pharisees were using both of these permissively, just about uh, physical matters, physical adultery. Ten Commandments are also about thought life. First commandment, have no gods, no other gods before me. Number five, honor your father and mother. Number ten, do not covet. They are heart matters. <laughs> and conveniently, it seems, the Pharisees have forgotten actually what number ten says, which is uh, do not covet your neighbor's wife. Now, Jesus is not anti-sex, <laughs> The Bible is not anti-sex. Some of you may remember I preached a series of sermons on the Song of Songs. That is not anti-sex. Maybe a lot of things, but it's not anti-sex. Jesus is anti-lust. How does he help us uh, with uh, this matter? Well, he begins with the eyes, doesn't he? Anyone who looks. Now, it's not the look that counts. It's what goes on in the heart. But it does begin with the look. A look, then a thought, and then action. So the way to control your thought life is to control your eye life. The way to control your thought life is to control your eye life, where you look. And like uh, Job, who made a covenant with his eyes where he would look, Jesus is encouraging us to refuse to look with lust. It's what goes on in the heart that matters, but the eyes are the, uh, the sentinels uh, to the heart. And we are to set a sentry at the doorway to our hearts to avoid opportunities for lust. The way to control your thought life is to control your eye Life. Now, for some of us men, that means we need to focus on the face and not look further down. And uh, in a Christian community like College Church or Whedon College, there are ways we can help one another in this regard. Uh, there's nothing wrong with dressing attractively, and it is certainly silly to legislate fashion. You know, how high should the boots be? How short should the skirt be? This is ridiculous. But we all know the difference between dressing attractively and dressing seductively. Sow a thought, reap a deed. Sow a deed, reap a destiny. How do you control it? It begins with the eyes. Jesus says a little bit more, though, doesn't he, as well? He says, actually, if you really want to be serious about this, and I want you to be, you need to cut out, uh, you need to cut off your right hand and throw it away. Cut off your right eye and throw it away. Now, immediately, we need to say this is not mutilation. 
This is mortification. Look with me at Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Romans 6, verse 11. In the same way, Paul is writing here about mortification. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. There you are, mortification. If you're a Christian, count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, we must be serious about mortification. Mortification is the art of killing sin by killing its deepest roots. Now, this passage in front of us has been misinterpreted. Historically, Oregon in the third century uh, uh, interpreted this as uh, literally castrating himself to try to uh, obey uh, this, uh, this teaching. Uh, the Council of Nicaea, though, in uh, 325 AD, ruled that such mutilation uh, was wrong, but it should have been pretty obvious to anyone, actually, because uh, this is a heart matter. You can be physically disabled, you can be blind, you can be mutilated and still lust. Jesus is speaking metaphorically. And why the right eye and the right hand? Because the right side for most people is the dominant side. So the right hand for most people is the hand that you write with, that you work with, that you do carpentry with. So it's the right hand. The right eye is usually the dominant eye for most people. And so this represents what is nearest and dearest to us. Jesus is saying, even if this means stopping something very important to you, it is worth it. Cut it out. Certainly that means no TV. Cut off the cable. Cut it out. That's the source of temptation. Cut it out. Certainly, this means uh, no internet. You can go to the library to ke- catch, uh, c- catch up on your email. Usually, it's not the source of temptation at work, it's at home or in the dormitory room. Cut it out. It's better to enter into life without Facebook than go to hell. Cut it out. So, it at least means that. But actually, I think Jesus is saying something a little more profound than just that. So if you take another parallel situation, say someone is addicted to food. Well, in a counseling situation, it's usually not particularly helpful to say uh, to such a person, uh, just stop eating. Hey, come on. And what is Jesus saying then? He's getting to the sin behind the sin. What is the feeling that you're perhaps trying to shove down? What is the empty space that you're trying to fill? What's the sin behind the sin? And similarly, with an addiction, if it is that, for you, to sex or pornography. What's the sin behind the sin? What feeling are you trying to avoid? What's the the right hand and the right eye that must be cut out and thrown away? What, What core part of your identity it feels like, perhaps? What's the darling sin behind the disgusting sin? Perhaps it's something that's been with you for a long time. You've grown accustomed to. To get rid of will feel like throwing away a piece of you. Well, that is what's required to get past this sin. 
Of course, there are accountability groups, and we have those at the church, and they're a good thing to be involved with, but accountability groups on their own will not uh, uh, help you. You can always find a way to get around the hardest questions. Most of all, you have to be willing, as Jesus says, to actually deal with it, to cut it out. Cut adultery out of the heart, sin behind the sin, the core part of why you're doing this. What about this sin is lovely to you? What is it that in this sin you are worshipping? You see that demon for what it is. And you root it out and you have done with it. Now, conviction and calling. We started with that uh, principle. As a Christian, you, if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, you are called to do this. And you can. <laughs> If you're not a Christian, then turn to Christ for his righteousness. Either way, cut it out. It reminds me of a story that I thought of this week in this regard about a teenage son who was, uh, you know, bench pressing in his bedroom, 250 pounds or so, one said after another, and his mother comes in and sees him pounding away the weights. and She says to him, how can you bench press 250 pounds, but you can't pick up your clothes? <laughs> yeah. Some things we find we can easily do as Christians, others we choose not to. We make excuses. If you're a Christian, you can do this and you're called to. Jesus gives warning of hell to tell us that whatever it costs, it's worth it to cut it out. Before his uh, death, the actor W.C. Fields uh, was uh, visited by a friend in his hospital room, and the friend was surprised to find W.C. Fields... uh, thumbing through his Bible. And the friend asked him, what do you do? And W.C. Fields said, I'm looking for loopholes. Well, Jesus closes the loophole. No Pharisee, it does include the heart. Cut it out. Well, the second area here is not just out of the heart, but out of marriage. Now, the picture of cutting it out is in the first part of the passage. It doesn't run through to the second part, but it is uh, paralleled because Jesus is talking about adultery in either situation. In verses 31 to 32, a classic crux of evangelical scholarship. Not everyone within the evangelical community agrees exactly how these verses should be interpreted. Jesus teaches again on divorce in, uh, a little later in Matthew more extensively, and we don't have time now for a lengthy discussion, uh, but the point in either passage is basically the same. The Pharisees had once again ripped uh, their quotation out of context. It's from Deuteronomy 24, and again, if you have a Bible open, I'd like you to turn to that just to see the kind of thing they were doing. Uh, Deuteronomy is in the Old Testament. In case you're wondering, Deuteronomy 24, they were saying, look, uh, anyone who divorces his wife, uh, they, they've got to give, him, give her a certificate of divorce. So the onus is upon the certificate and anyone can do this. But in Deuteronomy 24, the point is very different. If this took place, then... As Jesus says later in Matthew, this was because of the hardness of our hearts. 
if this took place, then. The aim is to protect a woman against male mistreatment, as was perhaps too common in the ancient world at the time. If this took place, then. And the Pharisees took that and said, ah, that means we can get divorced, just whatever has happened and whenever we want, all we need is a slip of paper and it's done. Uh, it's usually thought at the time that uh, the rabbis uh, were split into two schools of interpretation, Hillel and Shammai. And the Hillel uh, were more lax, that school was more lax. And the Pharisees apparently were attracted to the more relaxed interpretation. They regarded uh, divorce as possible, it, it, it seems, for anything, even what was unseemly. Just a certificate of divorce and you're done. And Jesus has a, a more strict interpretation. Divorce. No Las Vegas quickie divorces. Divorce cannot be easy. Now what about this sexual immorality that he talks about? It translates the word porneia. It's a different word from the word adultery, which is uh, moikeia. Porneia comes from porne, uh, meaning prostitute. And in classical Greek, it gradually became, uh, uh, developed a more general meaning for extramarital sexual conduct. It's used in the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint in Hosea, Israel's immoral behavior, as exemplified in Hosea's wife, Goma. That's where it comes from. So it doesn't mean any and every offense that could be traced to a sexual basis. Otherwise, it's basically equivalent to incompatibility. And there's no etymological basis or grounding for that interpretation of this word. It means physical sexual immorality. So the uh, New Testament professor of exegesis at King's College in London, R.V.G. Tasker, wrote a comprehensive word, including adultery, fornication, and unnatural vice. What about this uh, exception that Jesus mentions here? Well, this is the, the key part where uh, not everyone agrees how to interpret this passage. Lloyd-Jones uh, said this, One cause only, not a concession, not a command, but a legitimate ground for divorce. Some think that includes remarriage under certain circumstances. Others do not. Part of the difficulty, uh, frankly, is that uh, in Old Testament times, there was no need to consider whether someone could remarry after the spouse committed adultery because the penalty for adultery was death. Death by stoning. Now, there are certain circumstances that everyone agrees uh, where divorce is not sinful, the safety of the child or the spouse not sinful for what is usually termed the innocent party, though none of us are innocent. Even when sinful, it is not the unforgivable sin. There is a way back to God and into fellowship with His people as there is for any repentant sinner. The story of the, <clears throat> the perfect couple, perfect man, perfect woman, going for a drive together. They get into an accident. One of them dies. Who survived? Answer, the perfect woman. She's the only one who existed. 
To which the man replies, ah, she must have been driving. That explains the accident. You married an imperfect person. So did she. The secret of a successful marriage is recognizing that marriage is not performance, but a binding covenant until death parts. You know the words, don't you? In sickness and in health. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, until death us do part. So every time I do premarital counseling with anyone, I always say to them, you have to understand this is not a deal, this is a covenant. With a deal, you have an exchange of goods and you get uh, involved and connected with someone because you're receiving what you want and the other person's getting what they want. And when that is no longer the case, deal off. That's not a covenant. A covenant is a commitment, come what may. Marriage is a covenant designed by God as a creation blessing. It's a mystery intended to reveal Christ's love for the church. Now, those who are not yet married or have been married and no longer married, You equally have a possibility to receive that gift from God as a gift of singleness and in participation with the church as the bride of Christ to find complete fulfillment. Remember, single person, Jesus was not married. You too can find complete fulfillment in the church, the bride of Christ. And those who are married... Here's how you can keep going through sin, mistakes, failures, disappointment, sexual problems, depression, Uh, child-rearing disagreements, in-laws who really annoy you, and more. Marriage is the altar, we the sacrifice. Marriage is the pulpit, Christ, the message. Marriage is the sanctuary, Jesus, the Lord. On his uh, 50th wedding anniversary, Henry Ford was asked what his uh, rule was for marital bliss. He said, just the same as the automobile business, stick to one model. You may say, well, if that's really the case, if this is actually a lifelong commitment, maybe I should cohabit first. You know, statistically, actually those who do, and God can redeem these situations in His sovereign grace, but statistically those who do cohabit first are actually more likely to split up than those who do not. And here's how this works. Here's what's going on. Anything that suggests it's a deal, not a divinely ordained covenant, tends to undermine that commitment. And if you cohabit together, the message you're sending each other is this. If we are compatible, then we will get married, which means 
when there are difficulties, the deal is potentially off. Instead, after appropriate dating or courting or whatever you want to call it, and you covenant to be together, whatever, come what may, until death. It's this covenant commitment that gives marriage its longevity. And it also gives it the security that allows you to be yourself with your spouse. And therefore joy flourishes and grows, even in difficult times, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. So Jesus is saying, cut it out of the heart, cut it out of marriage. This is hard teaching, but Jesus gives a very good reason for it. What's that good reason? The good reason is, lest your whole body be thrown into hell. I think that trumps every other possible reason. How follow Jesus' teaching? How can we do it? The uh, great Chicago preacher H.A. Ironside had an illustration that went like this. Uh, pilgrims going west, uh, covered wagons and oxen and all that. And one time uh, there's a line of smoke in the west stretching miles across the prairie. Of course, that's dried grass burning and it's fiercely coming towards them rapidly. And the leader of the community uh, uh, took a decision. He, he told them to... Uh, the grass behind them to set on fire. And when the space had burned over, the whole company, he told, to move back upon this space. So the flames roar and they get closer and closer to the community and then suddenly a little girl cries out in terror, are you sure we're not all going to be burned up? And the leader says, my child, the flames cannot reach you, but we are standing where the fire has been. Perhaps you remember the story in John's Gospel of Jesus with the woman who'd been caught in adultery. They all gather around and bring the woman to him and he bends down and writes something in the dust. And he says, let him who is out sin cast the first stone. And One by one they leave. So no one left to condemn you? No one, sir, the woman replied, though she's not accurate. There was one, Jesus. Yet he took the fire for her. He was burnt that she might not be hanged, that she might not be crucified, that she might not be took. Hell, that she might not. Neither do I, he said, for he would take the fire for her. Go now, and from now on, sin no more. Cut it out. Let's pray together.
Oh Jesus, uh, we thank you for teaching us straightforwardly, unlike other religious teachers. We thank you also for teaching us graciously, unlike other religious teachers, and uh, by your death, providing the righteousness we need, and by your Holy Spirit, giving us the power to follow where you are leading. Father, I pray that uh, you would help us to make Jesus Lord in this area. That we wouldn't play with hellfire anymore. That we would see the gorilla in the room. And cut it out. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.